Hello guys, welcome back to the podcast. We are currently going through a rebrand, so I will not be saying synth though today. We'll update it very soon, still working on some names. Not going to rush it as one to be right, but as synth though is really growing, I want to have something which is separate. And this podcast is sponsored by Syntho itself, the electronic music platform. If you're a music producer who wants to get better, or you've got an interest in electronic music, head over to our Instagram or the website, or just DM me directly for more information. Today's podcast is with Mark McMahon. We are talking about his role in the industry as an artist liaison, some pointers of how to get in the industry, and in general, to chit-chat and sharing some wisdom as always. I always get asked about careers and things like that, so I thought it'd be good to get someone on board who has some experience and some knowledge to offer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Right, so we're rolling, bro. It's my first podcast for quite a while. I've been fairly complacent, and I'm actually thinking of changing the name. I'm still thinking what to, as Syntho's kind of taking on a life of its own. So I want to keep the podcast separate, and not just music, as in DJ-wise, but today's good because... We're having a conversation that's going to be around things involved in the music industry, but not necessarily the direct DJ. So do you want to do a little introduction of yourself, Mark, about who you are, whereabouts you're from, and the role you have got at the moment within music? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm Mark. I do artist liaison for uh, various people. I do Warehouse Project, Creamfields, uh, JBM Music, Albert Hall in Manchester, and of course, Hide and Seek Festival. Uh, I've been doing it for about seven years now since I was uh, 18 and uh, yeah but did it ever since I absolutely love it yeah so the million dollar question I always get is how do I get a job in the music industry and I always just say go and hang around where people are within that scene but I'd be interested to know what your experience has been when you were 18 and your initial steps when getting involved in music specifically did you think I want to become an artist liaison or was it something you stumbled into uh, yeah funnily enough um I actually, I actually didn't know it was a job. Like when I first moved to Manchester, like of course the warehouse project was like you know the main thing to go to. I was like, right, I need to get in there, like to, just to meet these people, like go backstage or whatever. So I started on uh, the like VIP bar. There's like a backstage bar in um, the warehouse project. So I got a bar job there, and every time I went to the shift. I was like, oh, can I just can I just go on the backstage bar just so I can network and meet all the you know all the people backstage? So eventually, like after a year or so on that bar, I I, I knew every single person backstage at Warehouse Project, and through that, I found out about Artist Liaison. And yeah, ever since that, I've, I've been doing it. So it's uh, I, it's it's quite cliche, but like you do need to be backstage to meet the industry. People. <laughs> Unfortunately, but here's what it is. Yeah, we had this conversation. I can't remember when it was about who was I talking to now it was about this like meeting the people backstage and I said okay how do you actually get backstage then but your your path to get there was via working on the bar yeah literally so do you get asked often about your job from people punters and and people on the bar alike um quite recently yeah but only through TikTok like, I've, st- I've started posting content on TikTok about like day in the life of what I do like what the job like uh, in roles and uh, through that a lot of people have been asking like oh how to become this how to become that and from my personal experience it is just networking like if you show your face at the same event like many many times you will just meet the right people and if you show passion in that role as well like the people will give you a shot like if you show passion okay and do you want to break down what the role of an artist liaison is from 
the initial, you know, you're getting up in the morning, you've got a gig that night. And I know, well, I say that night, I know where I was project. I was speaking to Jack Collier about this. They're absolutely grueling shifts, some of them, they're, they're length of time. Yeah. What is the actual process and involvement of being an artist liaison? So uh, I'll, I'll go through a warehouse project one, for example. Uh, usually, say it's just a, a night show, so it starts at 9pm, finishes at 4am. You'd usually get there about 7pm, maybe a few hours before doors, uh, and start prepping. You'll get like a rider sheet for all the artists, so what drinks and hospitality riders all the artists are having for each room. So you'll just break down each rider, put them into buckets, so when the artist arrives, they've got all their hospitality ready and stuff like that. There'll be there'll be usually a few different people on the team. There'll be like a, a greetings person. So like when the person arrives into the venue, that they'll come bring them from the car, uh, bring them to the uh, dressing rooms, and then I'll take over from there. So say I'm on the concourse room. Whoever's uh, in the concourse that night, they'll just I'll be introduced to them, and I'll just say, oh, hi, Mark, I'll be looking after you tonight. I'll grab the riders, stuff like that. And... Um, when it's time for them to go on stage, I, I'll go grab them and make sure they get on stage on time to, you know, keep to set times. Um, during the set, I'll just, just keep an eye on them. And then when they finish, make sure they leave the venue all right, like get back to the hotel and stuff like that. It's kind of like a host, basically. Yeah. And for me as the artist, it's the person that will then text me in advance of getting to the show, right? And then they'll come meet me outside. Yeah. Yeah. So like for a warehouse project, they'll have like just one person do it, like texting everyone. So ah, they'll, okay. They'll, so they'll they'll split up just like a logistics person, then they'll be like a concourse host. But they have much bigger teams than I've got on a normal like club night. I'll do all of that. So I'll do like all the texts, all the riders, everything. Yeah, from from the artist side, that's when you kind of feel like you're officially somewhat important because you get the text. I think for my first song was Part Life, and obviously now it's quite it's quite normal. Whether it be sometimes it might just be the promoter who's kind of being the liaison, but it makes a huge difference from my experience. Not only being a DJ, but also throwing a party yourself. If there is someone in charge and it's their responsibility to look after the DJ, I went and played in Amsterdam at a club called Lovely. That operation was insane. They had you know the lights guy, a sound guy, artist liaison. So you know if there was a crackle in the speaker, for example, not that there was, you knew who to go to, and it made the whole experience much much smoother and i think it's probably something a lot of smaller nights don't invest in and overlook it but you know it's just a few hours i think it can improve the experience for the artist which can then make them want to come back it can also make them want to tell other people about the night it can also allow the promoter to enjoy the night much more as well opposed to kind of waiting on hand and foot for the dj oh he wants the shot he wants this he wants that um it kind of offloads some of that responsibility well nearly all of it to the artist liaison yeah, absolutely. I, I've had to, like, on a smaller gig, like, on smaller shows, I've had to do, like, multiple, multiple roles. Like, I'd, I'd be the, as you said, I'd be the sound guy. I'd be the artist season. <laughs> I'd be, do, I'd be running around doing all sorts of stuff that I shouldn't be doing. But if there, if there's infrastructure there to, for me just to be an artist liaison, the, the night is so much better. So that's an interesting question for you. Do you think there is a minimum size event people should have an artist liaison or do you think it's something that all events should have or do you think it's something that you should build to? Because what I would say is, I think to begin with doing the role yourself, it does make you aware of what the artist liaison does. You know, like I know every single part of the process now, of like what you've got to do for the artist, you know, what their demands may be. So I would probably say to begin with, it's quite good to get your head around it yourself, but it's something we've done more recently is that we've always got someone now who is in charge of that role. 
Yeah, I think anything over maybe 500 cap and if you've got like more than two to three artists. And I think as a promoter also, you kind of want to focus on like the, the doors and stuff like that and other stuff like bar take. Uh, you don't, you don't want to be looking after the artists as well. So I think, yeah, anything over 500 cap and then two to three artists, you yeah. probably need one. And the question I always get is, what is the most ridiculous rider you've ever seen? I'm sure you've had that one as well before. Not <laughs> to name names. Yeah, I, I've had the first year of hide and seek. We had some crazy ones. Someone was requesting Nutri-Grain bars or Nutri-Valley bars along with a pack of cigarettes. It was like some fruit juice smoothies and then some Prosecco. But I'm always like, I kind of stand up for it. I'm like, if you're paying these guys multiple thousand pounds, the rider costs like a hundred pounds. So if you think that's a percentage, it is very little. And also, you, as the artist, you want to have an enjoyable experience. And likewise for the promoter, the, the little effort it takes to nail the rider, it will make that person then go away and leave much more, you know, like you actually cared about their experience. Yeah, hundred percent. We uh, Peggy Goo always asks for like like something to do with giraffes because she loves giraffes, like the animals. So um, I remember one year we bought her like Warehouse Project bought her like a giraffe onesie. Oh, and wow. she she absolutely freaked out. She loved it so much. She actually wore it. She literally put it straight on. It's just, <laughs> it's just as I said, it's just little things like that that make make a big difference. But as as far as crazy rider requests, I had um. I had an American artist who had like a framed picture of Jeremy Kyle on his, no. on his rider. Yeah. Obviously you don't, you don't have to honor it, but like they just take the piss sometimes. Like. And then another person had a Rolex on his rider as well. Shit. I'm guessing they didn't get the Rolex. No, absolutely not. It's just, I think they just, they just tried try to look, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. It's like those people on Bandcamp that put um, a vinyl only tune for like 500 pounds. And I'm still convinced someone probably does buy them, but. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a good shout actually. It's it's really funny the whole thing because people are always saying like ah oh, I think riders are almost painted to be this thing which is just pure diva-ish. but it will be the difference between I've played gigs and I'm literally asked twenty times for a drink and they're like ah oh, one sec one sec one sec but it's because I think it comes from the promoter being too busy they either go and forget or they've not got the right thing in place where they've got the drinks in advance so they've kind of created a headache for themselves to begin with where we've requested what we want, maybe some beers and some tequila, but they didn't actually get an advance and they have to go to the bar. And then there's the friction between the promoter and the barman because they've paid a higher fee for the venue. They don't want to give the drink for free. Then they're trying to negotiate, okay, we need a bottle of tequila. And then they're like, well, it's going to be this amount. And then it's like a complete nightmare. Then they come back half an hour later and say, oh, sorry, mate, I forgot. <laughs> yeah, that's it. No, I've, I've had that quite a lot. Um, the best nights I've worked, that you should have a lot of stock just like ready to go, like... Eat, like even extra stock if possible obviously i know like i know the promoter might not want to like pay out for everything but to have everything prepped like ready is crucial because like you like you want the drinks ready straight away for the artist like as you said to keep them as happy as possible so in terms of being backstage and watching some of the biggest artists in the world that likes warehouse project and creamfields have you noticed any common traits before people start their gig between the best guys do you know what? I haven't actually. I think everyone's really chilled out, you know, like, you know, like Carl Cox's and, you know, like en Enrico Singuliano's and people like that. They're all super chill. They're not like getting smashed. If anything, most of them don't even drink some of the biggest artists in the world. I think, I think the, the, the amount of professionalism and obviously the, the amount of time they've been doing it is just another day in the life for them. Like, I feel, I feel like the up and coming artists, a lot of them, you know, like to get involved and stuff like that. But, um, 
Yeah, I, th- I think Carl Coxon to people like that, they, they're, they're just super chill, super ready to go. Though. Yeah, I think the professionals, they got to that point by at some point implementing discipline because even me now, I'm playing Liverpool this Friday and I've not drank since hide and seek, which we'll talk about afterwards. And I'm like, right, I was telling my mate last weekend, this time's different. I'm I'm stopping the booze. I'm not drinking till Halloween. Like I'm cracking yeah, on. Yeah. The podcast is starting. YouTube back again. Synthro, the making tunes or everything. And obviously one of the main reasons I can't do that normally is because of the, the heavy weekends and like the brain speed that then yeah, yeah. Uh, I have. But I'm now like, fuck, Friday. I've seen that venue, the Williamson Tunnels that I'm playing at. And it looks, yeah, it looks sick. Amazing. It looks sick. So I'm like, right. I almost feel... You almost feel like, because you're the rider, for example, it seems a waste just to ask for sparkling water, but you can ask yeah. for a bottle of Patron or something, you know, take a few friends, have a few beers. But I've got to say, I really admire the artists that have built in that discipline, but a lot of them have done it for a long time. So I think they will mm. have had that that spell of, you know, really indulging in the, the whole DJ party lifestyle. But yeah, I, I, when I watch videos of you know, some of the bigger guys playing, you know, DC 10 and stuff. I'm like, oh, I'd have to, after the set, I'd want to party just because the adrenaline inside you. But do you notice a lot of them after, do they quickly leave the venue? That's my guess. The thing is, the bigger artists in the world, they, most of them have like multiple gigs on the same day. So like, for example, at Creamfields, I've seen many people like uh, Emily Lenz played for us at like 3 p.m. Didn't have a single drink, just had like two waters and then got a helicopter to fabric. Like, it's just like completely next. Like, they don't even time have time to have a drink. Like, it's, it's crazy. And have you ever? Well, one thing I struggle with is the late ones when I'm starting at like four and things like that. When you've spoke to artists, do you ever get much of a? This is asking for my own my own sake. Do you get much insight to what their preparation is when they're starting super late? Um. Yeah, it's fair. Most of them just stay in the hotel and have a nap and then wake up at like, say, 2am. Or so say they're starting at 4, they'll, they'll wake up at 1 or 2am, have like a disco nap. And then they would come in and maybe just have a shot just to like, you know, wake them up and like, get them get the, get them in the right mindset. Like. Yeah, it's funny. I'm, I'm still searching for the secret sauce of what to do when you're playing at 3 or 4. Uh, it's more common in Europe as well. Mm. But yeah, the... the the answer seems to be wake up, have a shot and a cigarette and then just hope for the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. Maybe a Red Bull or something like that. But Yeah, that's um, one thing I've I've started recently is I played in Belfast. No, Dublin. Sorry, they'll be very offended that I just said Belfast. Dublin, I played in. Sorry, guys. Um, and I was playing it. It wasn't too late. It was one. But I opted for an espresso martini about 11 but I'm very conscious. I'm very conscious of having caffeine because I know the effects of that on sleep. But also, there's way worse things you could put on your body than um, espresso martini. So that at 11 p.m. is a good compromise to going full turbo. And I actually felt like the caffeine inside me. I feel like I'm quite responsive to caffeine, even though I have it all the time. I actually really felt in the zone, and it makes me really dialed into what I'm doing. So it made the gig super, super enjoyable. And I didn't have an urge to. Because I kind of felt a bit, you know, wired literally off of the caffeine. So um, that was that is a little life hack for any um, DJs listening. Get a little espresso martini, and it kind of fills the void of uh, a full turbo. That's it. Yeah, that's a great shot. I've, I've never seen a DJ have an espresso martini on the rider. So that's a, that's neither a am one. I. It was it was um it was actually at the bar, 
before I went, but it could be a shout. I've seen that though. We had on the first shift high and seek, we had people requesting cocktails, things like that. But it's like, fuck, they are a bit hard to make. And I guess nah. as the artist lays on, the last thing you want is someone asking for a complicated drink. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could just get the cans, you know, the pre-made cans. But like, if if someone's asking for a freshly poured like cocktail, it's a bit too much considering you're in the middle of a field, right? And have you encountered that before? I've had a few people, not not particularly that, but I've had a few people like say we've run out of like premium vodka, like a Grey Goose or something. Like I've got them a, an absolute, which is still you know like a I decent vodka. Off. And they're like, I only drink Grey Goose and stuff like that. It's just it's it's crazy some of the stuff like. Well, that's the question for you. Do you think there is a notable difference between Absolute and Grey Goose? Uh, probably not, to be honest. Like, unless you're a proper vodka connoisseur. But like, if you're having a drink all night as well, I don't think it's going to be make, make that much of a difference, is it really? Yeah, if you've got through a bottle of Grey Goose already, already I, would, exactly. I would very much question the fact that um, an Absolute is going to even touch the sides, to be honest. Yeah, exactly. It's... Um, we do get some, yeah, we get some divas like that. It's, it's, it's crazy, and then it's, it's the same with champagne as well. Like they have a verve clique or whatever on the on the rider, and, you, and we say, oh, we've really got Moe left. Like some people turn their noses up at it. It's, it's really bizarre know, sometimes. When they're on a thirty grand a gig, you know what I mean. I think I think you can yeah. justify it slightly. Yeah, hundred percent. So you spoke about Creamfields during summer. What were some other highlights of the summer in your working role? Um, to be fair, I had a last minute booking for a Boomtown Festival, which I've never been to I've never been to Boomtown before uh before that. And I've got to say that was one of the most crazy experiences I've ever experienced in my life. Like I've never I've never seen a festival like that in my life. It was absolutely unreal. it's a very mixed bag of music, right? Yeah, like on my stage I had a pirate band and stuff like that. There's seven seventeen people dressed as pirates is is bizarre. It's really fun though, really fun. And when you're going to do these gigs, is it similar to how DJing works then? So you negotiate the deal of like how much you're getting paid and then it's either a landed deal where it includes your travel and you got to, you pay for your travel yourself, sorry, or it could be on top where it's a plus, plus, plus. Is it the same kind of thing when it's artist liaison? Yeah, absolutely. Like depending on the client, um, like they'll either give an offer to you or you can like try and negotiate an offer with them. But usually they'll just say, this is what, this is what, we could, this is what we're paying everyone. Like take it or leave it pretty much, so... And have you had any horror stories yet? Um, yes, I have. Yeah, I've had a few people not pay me. Um, I'm not. I'm not willing to name them at the moment. But um, yeah, I've had, it's, it's, only, it's only one client. There's like basically there's a miscommunication between t two of the people, two of the managers, and then eventually, like the guy, the, the main guy who was meant to pay everyone, didn't even know I was working at the festival. Oh shit! So, so I turned up to the, and worked all weekend send my invoices like like who's this guy like why why is he invoicing me and stuff like that it's just crazy that's that's the only one though every other one of my clients is spot on and i can't thank them enough so so you spoke about tiktok briefly yeah we know i know we spoke about this briefly at high and seek as well have you got a game plan for this and do you think it's something for the future as because you've got such an interesting role i think there is a huge competitive advantage straight away to be able to document all this stuff and create valuable content for the world yeah absolutely i mean i only started recently maybe a few months ago and i thought like because obviously i was at events every weekend and the amount of videos on my phone that i had that were just staying on my camera roll and not getting put to use i thought I might as well just start putting them on TikTok as like a little day in the life. And I've been enjoying it actually. It's like, it's quite fun making a little, like a mini vlog on TikTok. And it's, as he said, like the perspective I get of these events is like 
it's completely unique. Yeah, exactly. So um, I think I've got quite a good USP for um, the content. So I'm, gonna, I'm enjoying it. I'm going to keep going with it as long as I can. Yeah. One thing which is really bugging me is that I feel like that ship has sailed in the sense of it was super easy to get views like six months ago. And I feel like it slowed mm. down massively. Have you noticed the same? I mean, the reach is still much better than Instagram. I've had a few, like I only have a couple of hundred followers on it, but I'm still getting like tens of thousands of views on it, which is like really good. But um, I heard you mention about YouTube shorts as well. I feel like that's the next one. I think YouTube shorts could be um, the future as well. So. Yeah, well, if anyone's watched watching this, I'm willing to give you some advice as we're now 20 minutes in, so it means you must be interested. I think YouTube shorts is the future. If I had to bet my life on it, on something, it would be that. I feel like TikTok, I posted quite a lot, right? Pretty consistently for maybe six months now. I've got 2,600 followers. For anyone else, they would say that's like, that's decent, but I've got nearly 20K on Instagram. I posted pretty good content in terms of like, you know, like point of view from gigs. I've made really good clips. I've made, I've tried everything. And it's for the actual returns I've got from it, I think it's pretty shit considering all the people have blown up, you know, off. it seems to me that the quality of content on there for 90% is super low quality memes. And I thought, I did actually think it would go educational. Like my bet on TikTok was like, right, it's going to go pretty educational. It's going to be a place to, to teach people. I just get, I feel like I get more abuse than, than like, oh, this is helpful, this is that. And it's really weird. The stuff that seems to take more effort to make as well get a worse return. And with YouTube Shorts, what I think is amazing is you've got your short form alongside your long form. So it gives everything more context. So I also feel like on YouTube, I don't know why, I think psychologically, people are less likely to troll on, on YouTube. Whereas I feel like TikTok from the start has just been this thing of like, user 195632 has called you a twat, you know? And you're just like, yeah, but YouTube Shorts, it's basically just, if anyone doesn't know, it's just like Instagram Reels and TikTok, but you can't choose a thumbnail, I don't think. And it's just a title, which is pretty limited on characters. So you've got to use your title super, super well. I've been experimenting with different things like capital letters work well, some emojis, and I think the max length is like a minute as well. But I've read that the algorithm, say someone watches your longer form video, it'll then feed the shorts to them as well from your other content. So it's like hitting two in one really. And it makes sense, I think. Whereas TikTok is just a pure dopamine hit of like next thing, next, next, next. Whereas YouTube, I feel like you can build a relationship with your brand much better. It's giving you, you know, two different, aspects of how you can present yourself and in general i think having subscribers will always be worth way more than having followers on tiktok which i think everyone would agree with i think you can actually build a, i know people have made careers off tiktok but i don't think there's much longevity in it for the majority yeah the, i mean there's, there's a lot more money in youtube with subscribers like with like tiktok creators they need like millions tens of millions of followers and like uh engagement to make like a little bit of money i think yeah there's definitely way more in uh, youtube yeah it, it's something that really you know interests me youtube but it just takes effort and it's this quote that josh boyd said to me who, who works with us in high and seek he's working on a project and i said oh, how's it going and it's, it's been like three years or so and he just went, good shit takes a long time. And like, it sounds so simple, that quote, but literally good shit just takes a long time. And the majority of people kind of think, you know, month to month, even six months, but 
like YouTube, it's a fucking five-year game. And not only that, that's on the kind of macro scale, but even on the micro, looking at the actual videos themselves, you have to plan them. You know, they're recorded longer. You need to edit them. The production quality needs to be better. So I do think the barriers to entry, well, it's not a, not a thought, it's a fact, is higher for YouTube. Maybe not YouTube Shorts, but I think if you posted once a week for like three years, I would put three years on it. I think good things can happen and you can literally diversify in any way. You know, you can go into your niche, you can be more general, you know, this kind of lifestyle stuff. So I think it's a powerful platform, which has barely got into what it can actually be. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I've thought about taking my TikTok series into like a vlog series on uh, YouTube, but it, it does take a lot of confidence to be able to just like, go in front of a camera like that and explain to your audience well like create a story for them but um, i definitely think something in the future could like roll onto that yeah i just think about right what's the one thing i could create which is long form which can then be cut up so if you make one vlog which takes like you know three days of filming you can then probably make like 20 shorts out of it so it's like do the work once and then recycle it endless amount of times my goal is to have someone that just comes with me to every single gig. And it's like, you just build up this. If anyone's watched the Kanye West thing on Netflix, he had someone following around for 20 years or something like that. And then put it all in one documentary. And I mean, I've got a lot of content anyway, probably more than what nearly everyone has because of filming and stuff, but trying to get them actual, you know, moments that are, you need someone behind your filming. Cause if you always having to stop, press record, some of mm. it kills that natural flow. Whereas when I watch things on YouTube or, you know, by some of the creators, I really like when it's actually capturing the moments and you're actually witnessing firsthand. I mean, you can only imagine what it'd be like to document this behind the scenes at Warehouse Project constantly. I know I'd, I'd, I'd love to um, get permission to do it. They don't like filming backstage and stuff like that. So I'd, I would have to get permission to do it, but like in the venue, I'm, I'm allowed to do stuff in the venue. Yeah. So. I think it's fair enough. Like I wouldn't want mm. anyone coming to film backstage of hide and seek unless it was actually us ourselves, yeah, which exactly. we did actually get a lot of stuff this year. It's hard because you've literally got to consciously, with vlogs, you think, oh, just film yourself. You've got to consciously stop all the time and be like, right, get the camera out. Oh, that was good. Let's film that. And then by the second time round, it can get a bit of, a bit tedious. And also the best way would be to have someone come with you. One, it's the cost. And two, I find with gigs... If I want to chill out before the gig and I paid someone 400 quid or 300 quid to come with me, it's like, it seems almost counterproductive to then be sat in the room watching Dave or whatever. <laughs> so when you went into working at the bar in Wales Project, was it from an aspect of that you wanted to build a career? I know we kind of touched on this before, but you make music as well, don't you? Yeah, this is the thing. My, my degree was uh, electronic music production. Like I was into like Future House at the time, like people like Oliver Heldens and like Charmy and people like that. I remember I, f I literally moved into my halls and like two weeks later, Oliver Heldens was playing at the Warehouse Project. So I was like, no, like how do I, how do I meet this guy? Like he's literally just across the road. Like I need I need to go chat to him. Like maybe get an email or whatever. The best way was, was literally just to get into the bar. Like I saw the bar job the same week. I was like, well, that gets me at least in the door. And then once I'm in the door, I can find a way of getting backstage. Surely. Have you found since doing the artist liaison, you've took your foot off the gas with the making music side of things and saw more of a career in the logistical back backstage behind the scenes stuff opposed to being the guy on the stage yeah absolutely I, I still i still would love to be an artist but i feel like i've done the hard work because most people 
I've got my network is is crazy now, like, and most people never actually get the chance to like have the network with their favorite artists. So I've I've actually done the hard work, and if I want to, you know, keep, keep going with my music stuff on the side, I can get my music to any one of my favorite artists in the world now, which is a huge, huge benefit. Yeah. So is it something you're still actively pursuing? Yeah, absolutely. I still I still make beats during the week just as a hobby. And have you thought about what the future would look like in this industry? Or are you just taking it as it goes? I mean, there's, there's definitely a few options. I, obviously, I can continue with like event, like, like event management and stuff like that. There's plenty of roles like tour managing, event management, production, like lighting, stuff like that. I've done all stuff to do with that. So I can, I can continue that for like, I can see that continuing for the future, for sure. Yeah, tour manager would be a good one. It's just very grueling, right? Because it's, you know, constantly you've got to, well, you've got to literally follow the artist round and, and be there hand and foot in case anything goes wrong and, and logistical wise. Do you have a good idea of what a tour manager typically involves for anyone listening? It's basically like a traveling artist liaison. So it's like, say you get to America or something, like when you get to the venue, you have to like, say you got to transfer to another city the next day. You're just, you're just organizing the, uh, the car transport and all that stuff just to make sure the logistics, it's more like logistics to be honest, to make sure the artist gets to each city on time and stuff like that. Yeah, I think it's something which is short term super fun, but I could imagine doing it for quite a long time, you know. Everyone knows the the impact these late nights and partying has on the DJs and I think having, doing it as the artist lays on, you've almost got extra responsibility for the whole operation than just turning up and playing. Yeah, I mean the tour manager's role is to make sure that artists can focus on being an artist and not worry about anything else like it's, it's the same with the artist liaison really yeah so for any people that are you know wanting to get their foot in the door do you think college or anything university or any courses are beneficial or do you think it's purely a matter of going and finding that job and trying to break in for me personally my, my university course didn't help me at all with the industry I, I i met all the people all the industry people off my own back but there are a few courses that i know that have like good teachers uh there's a people there's sophie b i don't know if you know sophie b from my project no uh so she's like one of the one of the managers at Warehouse project she works at bim Okay, and she, and like she does a, a music business course at BIM, and then she always gets people because she's in the industry. She always gets people work experience, awareness projects, and stuff like that. Okay, but for me personally, my my I went to SSR in Manchester. Yeah, yeah, and, I know which one it is? Yeah, they they didn't really. There wasn't much industry connection. I I got all my connections off my own back. Yeah, I mean, not to throw shade at these places, but I think a lot of it is quite unpractical. I think a lot of the courses, I'm, I'm sure you can probably relate. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I don't want to don't want to speak down on them, but a lot of people say. I had a conversation actually three days ago with a girl who was going to a certain big London one. Well, said she wanted to go to it, and she was asking for advice, and she was saying, "Oh, well, look, you can get all these other careers with it." It was like an A and R person. Um, and all these, and I was just, I, I said, listen, I said, I'm going to be quite honest with you. I've done, you know, a festival, a label, a, a synth, which is a business now teaching. I've never hired anyone based on their qualification. I think this whole industry is very much on experience, which I do think makes it very hard for someone sat at home to dis, to decide, okay, I want to do this. This is the next logical step because I don't think there is a next logical step really, but I've just said, offer your services as a ticket scanner, offer your service as someone on the bar. Because I met Kurt and Dan, etc., who I created Hide and Seek and You and Me with by selling tickets for their first night called Under. And then I played a gig and then went to Ibiza. Then I said, hey, you know what, guys? I want to start something myself. 
do you guys want to come join? And we decided together to start something fresh. And that all came from me just selling tickets for their first night. But I think an important point to make is you can't really think, right, I want to be an artist liaison. So I'm going to go and work on a bar. I think you've got to go and do the job for the sake of doing the job and just be, and just be confident in the fact that if I do this and work hard, then something good will come. Not to go too life advice but I say this to anyone doing anything. If you're good at anything you do, say you just work, you know, as a waiter in a restaurant and you're really, really fucking good at it, then you'll get promoted to be the manager in the restaurant. Then you could be the area manager of the restaurant, then the national fucking sales manager of the restaurant thing. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think it's just a matter of looking at the thing in front of you and doing it extremely well. And I think good things will come. 100%. I feel, I feel as if if you show passion and like drive in something, the, the people who appreciate that will pick up on it. So like I was, I was very fortunate that, that uh, Damien and Simon, head of artist liaison, saw that I was really passionate about music and like the whole scene itself and was more than happy to like give me the opportunity to start working with the Wales Project Artists. So I'd highly recommend just if like showing passion and drive in anything you do. So if you look back to your younger self, what advice would you give Mark at the age of 18 when he's going back into that initial phase of working in the music industry? Hmm, that's a difficult question. I don't think I've changed anything, to be honest. I think I think the way I did it was uh, quite natural and good. But I think on the, on the university side of things, the best thing about my university wasn't actually the university. It was moving to Manchester because the, the amount of opportunities in a city compared to where I was living was tenfold. So I think move to a place where the, where the scene is good, Yeah, get involved and like more stuff will come to fruition. Yeah. Well, Mia, who's list, who will be editing this, will be listening to what I'm about to say now. She's just about to move to London and she's been living in, the name has passed my, passed my brain now. But anyway, she doesn't live in a big city, which, you know, I think, for where, I think I'm lucky to live near to Manchester, but you know, if you're in the sticks, the probability of crossing paths with anyone or get an opportunity which can change your life is much thinner if you're not in the mix. Simply put, yeah, hundred percent. You need to be you need to be at an event every weekend, especially if you're a student. You need to be out two, three nights a week, just meeting promoters, meeting everyone in the industry, and then eventually, if you become that regular face or familiar face, like they, they'll like they'll start contacting you for potential, you know, work and stuff like that. So, so what does the next six months look like? Uh, mainly Wales project now, and I've got a tour uh, doing '90s babies. So it's like a '90s classic night. Uh, so I'm I'm doing uh, all over the country. With that I've got I think I'm doing, uh, Swansea Friday, and then I'm Warehouse Project Saturday, then I'm in Edinburgh Sunday. So three different countries in three days, so which will be interesting. And then there's uh, loads of other dates with the '90s baby tour, and then just a lot of Warehouse Project shows. So. So do you prefer the summer season or the winter season? I do like summer season. It's got to be sure. It's an artist yeah. season. It's daytime, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's all daytime shows and you're in the sun. It's lovely. Hot, yeah. Nice weather. But I, I, do, I do like Warehouse Project, but when it's when you come outside and it's snowing, it's just a bit It's just a bit really sometimes. Yeah, I think for me, the biggest thing is just the sleep. I can't quite, oh, yeah, I just definitely. can't, I can't quite find the perfect pre-match ritual. I know the, I said the uh, espresso, but even so, like, I get very conscious, like oh, I'll be knackered tomorrow, and I get get in my own head a bit sometimes of like the whole sleep deprivation. But is that something you don't really struggle with too much? I mean, I'm fortunate enough because because we both work for ourselves. Like, say when it gets to a Monday or a Tuesday, I am able to like sleep in for a bit or yeah. have a day off and chill out. Um, 
but it's still not like bad. But say I've worked all weekend till four or five a.m. I'm going to sleep at six a.m. like Saturday morning, Sunday morning. By the time I get to Friday, my sleeping pattern's back to normal. Okay, and, then, and it's like and a, the, yeah, and, then it's yeah. the, and then it's the weekend again. So it's it's, it's a never-ending cycle, right? So I think that's all the um, the questions I had in mind. Is there any insights or you know advice you think you can offer to any of the listeners? Um, I get I, yeah, I get asked quite often like, how do I become an artist liaison? And I'd say there is a lot of volunteer like for fest like festivals do have a lot of volunteer roles. So I would suggest like volunteering to start with because that is just one way of getting yourself into the festival for free, like and meeting the people. Yeah, I, I know. I know. Part life, they they have volunteers quite often, and then I, quite often from the volunteers, they have like brought them on into the the uh, AL team, so stuff like that. Yeah, I think ultimately it's going out there and grabbing it. You know, grabbing life by the ball, so to speak, and not being passive, because no, I don't think these kind of things they're not really publicly advertised massively. Yeah, yeah, and definitely. I know people may message me after this and say about our events, but we don't really have anything on offer right now. Uh, as we've got a team in place, but it is always worth a DM, a tweet, you know, try and find an email and try and you look with these places. I mean, I, I have an example literally from last week. I had a last minute dropout from um, a show that I was working. I, I needed a second ale for a second stage. And they might, obviously all the people who had DM me showing interest, um, like in the p- previous weeks and stuff like that, I actually gave one of them a, a role. So just always just show interest, send DMs and stuff like that. Awesome. Well, I'm sure any of the listeners have got any questions about um, anything, they can just drop you a message on Instagram. Yeah, 100%. Uh, my Instagram is Mark MarkMacMahon. Uh, yep. it, should, it, should, it should be down in the link yeah, yeah. below or something. So yeah, f- uh, feel free to send me a message and I'm more than happy to help. Right, nice one, Mark. I think we can wrap it up there. Next Thanks time so I will see you is, I'm not too sure. I'm, we're doing a Halloween show, but I reckon you'll be doing Warehouse Budget that weekend, won't you? Um... I'm not sure, maybe. Uh, I'll have to get it in the calendar. We'll maybe discuss it after. Okay, cool, Mark. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much. I will drop you a message on Instagram. Oh, amazing. Cheers, Cheers bro. bro. Have a good one. Bye.